Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is generously sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. We'd also like to welcome our newest sponsor, the Lumina Foundation. Thank you very much for your support. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And please, please rate us on iTunes. Yes, please rate us on iTunes. And if you have a fun story to tell, we'd love to hear that too. Now let's get to the show. Welcome back to another edition of Let's Hear It. You've got Kirk and Eric here. And um, Eric, we've got a lot of ground to cover today, I'm going to say. But before we go there, I do want to say a big shout out and thank you. We've been getting Twitters and tweeters and folks following and people reaching out. And um, People come to the house. They knock on the door. <laughs> you owe someone dinner? I, I, <laughs> thanks to you, I, yes. I, apparently, I owe somebody dinner. So it's just... I don't think we've said thank you yet, so thank you to everybody who's listening and also who's reaching out because it's um, your ideas are great and we just love hearing from you. So thank you so much for listening. Let's hear it. Thank you. So uh, we have ground to cover. Introduce who we're about to hear from, and then we have a whole lot to talk about. This is uh, we keep saying it. I have to say it again. This is a truly special edition of Let's Hear It that we're about <laughs> to set. It is truly special, and and so just I don't want to say too much before we get into it. All I can say is grab a hanky and have it close. <laughs> oh my because god! I interviewed Donnie Sandoval, who runs Lava May, which is an organization that provides mobile showers to unhoused people in the San Francisco Bay Area and Los Angeles. And Donnie's it has a background in marketing and communications, and uh, we'll certainly let her tell this story. But one day she found herself in the business of supporting and providing kind of real, true human services and deep emotional connections with people who very, very infrequently ever get seen in yeah. as, as, as people. And the storytelling and the understanding about how to communicate and how to kind of really be a human being is something that just comes out so palpably. It's it's really wonderful. And Denise is fabulous. I met her when she was a recipient of the Irvine Leadership Awards, the James Irvine Awards. And uh, I've always been so impressed with her work. And, you know, just a huge thank you to Denise, to Lava May, and all the work they're doing because, oh, my gosh, I couldn't believe how amazing this was. So let's go to it. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest today is Dunny Sandoval, the founder and CEO of Lava May, an organization that brings hope and dignity to people without homes by providing mobile showers in the San Francisco Bay Area and now Los Angeles. Thank you, Dunny, so much for coming on Let's Hear It. I have long admired your work, and I'm really delighted that we have a chance to discuss what you do and, and how you do it. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. So let's just start with your background. You you, do, you don't have a background in providing mobile showers for no. people who are not housed. <laughs> no, um, my I would say the vast majority of my career was spent doing marketing, branding, PR strategies for a range of companies across fashion, lifestyle, technology, and then in the arts before I got involved with this. What what interested you in that? Why did you get into marketing and, and PR? You know, it's sort of uh, one of those things you stumble into. Um, when I was in college, I was going to explore two possibilities. One was that I was potentially going to pursue a career as an opera singer. Um, and the other is I had this weird natural talent in golf. So I got scholarships for both. <laughs> Um, and the, the right, golfing opera singer. Yes, exactly. Right. That that would be very novel, right? I should say. <laughs> that would make the papers. <laughs> Probably. Yes, there's my hole in one and I burst out in an aria. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what I ultimately realized about myself was that I am a generalist. I'm not a deep diver. And if you're a generalist and you like the idea of what happens between organizations, between people, essentially communications and all sorts of levels. Marketing is kind of an interesting way to go. I mean, 
Um, when you think of marketing traditionally, you're thinking about companies or entities shoving out content towards people. But, you know, the kind of marketing that works is really about creating dialogue and exchange and getting to know each other. And it's not this one way thing, which is really surprising that it's taken us a fair amount of time to kind of arrive at that understanding. <laughs> but we're slow to learn sometimes. So who was it, John Wanamaker, who ran the department store in Philadelphia, said half of my marketing is working. The problem is I don't know which half. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that's really true that we d it's, it's hard to hear. Very much. I mean, we think of ourselves as experts in our own arenas, right? And so therefore, if we just craft the perfect message and the ideal campaign, it will deeply resonate with the people <laughs> we're trying to reach. And they'll have this moment of, aha, brilliance, and yes, sign me up. <laughs> right, the world will beat a path to your door. Exactly. And what it completely ignores is this idea of complexity, that we as individuals have so many things, first of all, especially now, pulling at our attention and our pocketbooks. Um, but even beyond that, just the inner wonderland that exists within each one of us is so incredibly complex. And even if you land with the right note in the moment, that may not sustain, right? And a good marketing person wants to build a relationship, not have a one-off. So, Well, the good marketing person, if they can find my inner wonderland... <laughs> They're welcome to it. <laughs> I've been searching for a while. I, I, I'd like to talk about you. So you started Lava May six years ago. Yes. And can you first, other than my boilerplate introduction, can you talk just a little bit about what it is you do and how you got started? Yes. Well, let me start with how I got started. Um, I was actually deliberately taking a year off. Um, I had just left an organization called Zero One, where I was chief external relations officer, which is all things marketing. And I loved it. But I was commuting to San Jose, which was really wearing on me. And I had a five-year-old daughter. And I felt like I wanted to have more balance in my life, which I've come to realize is a real myth. <laughs> There's no <laughs> such thing as balance. Let's get to that. Yes. And so... A few really weeks in, I began to look around at my neighborhood, which was at the time known as the Western Edition. When we moved in there, it was a deliberate choice because my family is, is very mixed. Uh, my daughter's adopted through the foster care system, and she's part African-American, part Latina, and Pacific Islander. And I am Latina and a bit Native American, and my husband is first-generation American who's Albanian and ethnic Yugoslavian by descent. So we're just a mixed bag. <laughs> you checked all the boxes and yes, you made a few. Exactly. That's and, pretty but cool. But we decided we wanted to live somewhere that was diverse, that looked like us. And when we moved into the neighborhood, it was a very lovely place where people knew each other, where there were block parties, where if you needed a cup of sugar, you could knock on your neighbor's door and you knew your neighbors were looking out for you. And we really loved it. And by the time I was taking this time off, gentrification began to hit our neighborhood. The restaurant Nopa changed the name of our neighborhood entirely. Yeah. Right. I know people who blame Nopa. <laughs> yes. And I know, there's, I know the owner and the chef and he's a lovely man, but it did begin to make the neighborhood appealing to other people. Plus it's centrally located in the city. So it's a desirable place and it's sunny. It doesn't quite hit the fog bank. But one by one, three of our neighbors who were all gentlemen in their 80s got evicted. And they all started over a period of a year to live in their cars until those got repossessed because they got parking tickets. And then they ended up on the street. And as desperately as we tried to help them find housing and connect them to services, you know, the city, which is known all over for, you know, having an incredible number of services for people who are unhoused, they were all struggling to meet the needs and had wait lists that were thousands deep. And so we lost all of our neighbors. They yeah. all ended up passing away on the streets. I mean, how you survive when you're 80 after you've spent your life being comfortably housed, I don't know. That really ripped us apart. And I couldn't I couldn't explain to my five-year-old daughter, much less myself, for my husband, why this was happening. And so we decided that we would start to get involved. We started to volunteer. We started to donate. But it ended up not feeling like enough. And one day, I tell the story of how I took a cab ride that literally changed my life 
When we hit the Tenderloin, which is the section of the city with the highest number of people living on the streets, the cabbie leaned over his shoulder and he said to me, welcome to the land of broken dreams. And his words were so jarring that I stopped doing whatever I was doing. And I looked out the window and despite having been through the Tenderloin hundreds of times, really saw people for the first time. And my first thought was that not a single one of them when they were little, like my five-year-old daughter, ever dreamed of growing up to live on the street. And yet there they were. And that thought really pierced me viscerally. And so I decided that I was going to find a way to do something more than what I was doing. I knew people needed housing, and I had not a clue how to make housing happen. But I'm an ideas person. And so I thought if I just kept my eyes open, I'd either see a need that wasn't being met or figure out a way how to meet one better. And, you know, we talk about um, these, or people talk about these states of flow. And that's really sort of what I seem to enter. Within a short period of time, I passed a young woman on the street who just kept saying over and again that she would never be clean. And it made me wonder what her chances were for getting physically clean because every unhoused person I saw was struggling. So I found out, I went through, did the research, found out about the 16 shower stalls and about as many toilets and thought, okay, maybe this is something I can help with. So the, I, to, to interrupt, there are 16 shower stalls and as many toilets for all the unhoused people. For 7,500. In San Francisco. People. Yes, yes, right? In a city that has 175 uh, millionaires per square mile, no, 107 millionaires per square mile and 75 billionaires on top of that. Yeah. So then I happened to see an article in the Chronicle about um, the feds giving Muni all this money to retire the diesel buses. And being the marketing person that I am, I thought, okay, to raise money, you need a good story. What better story than to take something people love to hate, a Muni bus, and do something <laughs> good with it. And so that was the spark that started Lava May. And, and did you, was there a sense in you that you were just going to have to do something yourself, that you, you wouldn't use your, your, uh, your evil powers for marketing <laughs> and, and PR to just kind of get other people to do things? Well, see, now there is the secret um, that I've been harboring all these years. I really did think I was going to get somebody else to do this. I thought <laughs> I was going to take this to the Zen, the then czar of homelessness, Bevan Dufty, and say, ta-da, I have this great idea, or to another nonprofit. And they would say, yes, we need this. Yes, good idea. You don't know what you're doing, so go away, but we'll do it. Um, at the end of the day, though, everyone just said, great idea. If you go do it, we'll help you. <laughs> and so I had this reckoning, this moment of like, okay, um, I can't use marketing to persuade people to do it. If it doesn't happen through my efforts, it's not going to happen at all. So it compelled me to, to actually take the action. <laughs> well, that, must have been, that must have been difficult. Yes. <laughs> Terrifying. How, where did you start? Well, I went back to Bevan Dufty, who had given me a list of 50 nonprofit leaders to talk to, thinking that, that he'd be done with me after that, and said, okay, I talked to everyone. And he looked at me and he's like, what do you want? And I said, well, I heard about these buses. I want these buses. And then in meeting with the um, gentleman who was responsible for decommissioning these buses, you know, I was telling him my idea. And he's like, well, you can't carry water on the buses. You'll destabilize them. So then I went back to Bevan and I said, I need to figure out how I get water. Can I talk to the SFPUC? And so he just began to get people together at the table with me. And we started to talk about the idea and figure out how logistically it might work. And so we were able to get all these temporary permits to pilot this wacky idea. The hardest part turned out to be finding the organization that would actually retrofit the bus. You know, there are all these companies across the country who, you know, custom tailor buses for rock bands or, you know, musical bands or for Nike show, whatever. And I contacted them and they were all interested initially, but then they stopped sort of returning my calls in a timely fashion. And they're located like in Florida or Ohio or something. And I began to have this sense of panic thinking, we're in the place where they're trying to woo my business and this is their response rate. You know, once they have the bus, what will happen? And so, I don't know, I just started calling on every power I knew, just like, okay, I need something to happen. And one day I happened to be on Treasure Island looking at temporary parking and met this gentleman. And he said, I love what you're doing. I'm going to help you find someone. He was an electrical and mechanical engineer, had his own company. And two weeks later, he called me. He said, I have a company from Sacramento called Airco. They build the guts of skyscrapers, and they want to make a difference in their community. They'd like to talk to you about your project. And they ended up being the company that helped us retrofit our buses. That was my biggest problem, and it was solved, right? It's that state of flow. Yeah. 
The skyscraper guts people. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. What is there anything in your background other than your marketing and communications chops that would make you think that you could run a, a thriving organization where you're sitting in your offices and there's people out there and it's so exciting what you're doing? Probably my dad. Um, so when I was growing up, he actually worked on the uh, war on poverty programs under the Johnson administration in South Texas, he led a huge, like 700 person organization. And then after he stepped away, he became an entrepreneur, which is what I think he is at his heart, at his core. So I think watching him made me feel like these things were doable. If you, you know, had a decent idea and you were organized and you could raise the money, you could make it happen. And so that probably on a subconscious level had a lot to do with the moxie that I <laughs> cultivated. <laughs> it's good. I have a daughter and she's got plenty of moxie. I don't know if she, <laughs> she got it from her mother, but, uh, I, but I, I encourage it nevertheless, but that's so interesting. And I mean, you say that retrofitting the bus is a technical problem was one of your big challenges. What were some of the, were there existential challenges? Were, what kind of roadblocks did you encounter? It was less around roadblocks. When we were starting, people were very excited about the idea. Um, we had a, speaking of existential, right, I had this vision of this bus and it would have five showers and one toilet and maybe a pull-out trough so that people could like shave and, you know, do all of that. And my architect and I, this amazing guy who worked under Renzo Piano under the Cal at the California Academy of Sciences, uh, his name is Brett Turpaluk, we went um, and worked together and one day just had this realization that we hadn't really been talking to the people we were going to serve. It was like, oh, light bulb, come on, hello. And so started to spend a lot of time asking people, you know, what they wanted, what they needed. And the wish list was enormous, but there were three things that we heard over and over again. And, and they all took me by surprise. Um, when you think about them, they make sense, but I, you know, had never thought about it. So the first was that when you were unhoused, you spend your entire life in the public eye. You never have a moment of respite and privacy, which is utterly daunting to me how people can survive that. The second is that if you were a woman or LGBTQ, the incidence of attack in showers is really high because they're usually like gym showers, you know, multiple shower heads that are all open, uh, maybe divided by a, a shower curtain. And so safety is an issue. And then the last is if you have a disability and there's a lot, you know, somewhere between 45 and 62 percent, depending upon the year, um, you might find a place that will meet your, your accommodate your disability, but not necessarily keep you safe, or will keep you safe but not meet your you know, accommodate your disability. So we wanted to be able to address all of those issues. So this five showers, everything went out the door, and we began to look at the bus in terms of two private bathrooms that were accessible through the two doors. Um, and design became, you know, I was working with an architect, so design was important, but it became even more important in terms of thinking of the colors that would be the most soothing. Thinking about the fact that this was a bus and that to build in the bathrooms, we had to basically shut down all the windows so there was no natural light. So could we add skylights? Could we, you know, build in speakers so we could pipe in music? Um, Kohler's contacted us right away and said, we love what you're doing. Can we supply you with all the bathroom fixtures? So beautiful bathroom fixtures, um, warm, white, fluffy towels. The whole idea is to create an experience that said, you are worth so much. Yeah, You are intrinsically worthy of everything um, instead of getting these cast-offs that just make you feel like, you should be grateful for for whatever is good enough. And that sort of was a seed that shaped, I think, everything that we did and what we ultimately have ended up calling radical hospitality, right? This idea that, yes, a shower is vital to your sense of self-esteem and sense of dignity and ability to go get a job or keep one or apply for housing. But the way that you're treated is so important, perhaps even more important than the service itself. And I always like to give the example of going to the DMV. I've been to a few DMVs in San Francisco, and they're almost uniformly the same. Um, overcrowded, you know, dilapidated buildings with terrible lighting. Nobody's happy to serve you. Nobody's happy to be there. But you get your needs met, 
and then you hope you never have to go back, or at least not for a very long time. And that, unfortunately, is how we provide services to too many people who are experiencing homelessness. Well, after the break, I want to talk to you about this notion of seeing, about understanding the people with whom you want to engage and who you want to serve. And so we're going to just take a quick break, and we'll be back uh, with Denise Sandoval of Lava May. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications, hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is made possible through the generous support of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and the Lumina Foundation. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on iTunes so more people can find us. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Hear It. I'm I'm here with Dunny Sandoval of Lava May, and you tell a story about encountering a, a woman. And actually, I'm now <laughs> I'm starting to choke up as I think about it's this story because yeah. it really, really touched me. But it involved seeing somebody. Can you? Would you just tell us that story and do your best? I, I, I see no tissues, so we're going to just have to, <laughs> we'll just have to hold it in. Yes. Um, so integral to radical hospitality is really seeing each other, right? And it's something we all need, right? Brene Brown talks about belonging, and it is about a feeling of, you know, I'm not just accepted, but I am seen and welcomed for who I am. And growing up in South Texas in a small community, you you acknowledge each other when you pass each other on the street. So I started conducting this little experiment because I was feeling very disconnected in the city that I had been living in for almost 20 years. And I, I came out of a pizza one day, and about you know 20 feet up from me or so was a woman sitting on the sidewalk surrounded by her belongings and her little dog. And as I approached, I called out, good morning. And... I stopped in front of her and she looked up at me and she said, you see me. And my first, sadly, my first thought was that, oh, she must be experiencing a little bit of mental health issues. But I responded, I said, yes, you're sitting right there in front of me. And then what happened next completely caught me off guard. Her eyes welled with tears and she said to me, you are the first person to acknowledge my existence in an entire week. I thought I was a ghost. She had been living in this city, you know, surrounded by people passing her all the time, feeling completely invisible. And I know that that is something that every single human being grapples with at some point, whether it's because you're getting older and our society values youth and so you become invisible, or maybe it's because you go off to college for the first time at an enormous campus where you feel like if you disappeared, nobody would even notice, whatever it is, right? Being seen, being acknowledged as a fellow human being as we're mucking our way around during the day is so incredible. People don't realize that is the, the devil is truly in the details. It is the small, small actions of kindness that can be hugely transformative. I, I That touched me so much. And I'm going to segue into communications because that's supposed to be what we talk about, even though... <laughs> what you do is about so much more than communications, but it is also about understanding how to reach another person. And that part, I think, is something that we can all learn from. Now I'm going to go wander off into big politics now, but I think that one of the challenges of our day is the fact that we don't see other people. We may not have to agree with them on everything, but we have to at least have some form of empathy if we're ever going to heal ourselves as a culture. Absolutely. And, and, and you have taken what may some might consider a small bore approach, which is let's just provide somebody with a clean, safe place to, to feel clean. And, you know, you're not solving the homelessness crisis, but you are opening up minds into how to think about engaging with other people. How has this experience informed how you think about these much larger issues that are facing just us here in San Francisco, but also across the country? I think rather profoundly, truthfully, what it has made me do is to approach people across the spectrum 
with a blank slate as much as possible, right? Whereas I think before, I was always coming, projecting my idea of who you are on you based on the way that you were dressed or the way you carried yourself or the accent you did or didn't have, right? And that immediately turns another person into an other, different than me, right? And the minute we otherize someone, we make it possible to do anything to and nothing for them. Mm. And so, you know, I try and to, this sounds so California airy fairy, but I really do just try and drop into my heart and open up to whoever is across from me and receive them and myself where we both are. But to really ultimately recognize that at the core, you and I have very similar hopes and dreams. We want to be respected. We want to be seen for who we are. We want to be safe. Those things don't change from person to person. And if you can start there, you open up the door just a little and a bridge can be built that can, you know, connect you across these chasms of differences that define us these days. Are we having an empathy crisis in America? I think so. Sometimes, you know, people ask you, oh, if you had a superpower, what would it be? And um, I saw a movie eons ago. It's a, a foreign film um, by Vim Vendors called Wings of Desire, and they're angels walking amongst us. But, I love that movie, by right? the way. And they know you, they know everything about you. And it's like, what if for one day we could all walk around and everyone we passed, we had this instant knowing we would be so kind and compassionate with each other and with ourselves, right? But we wear masks, and the masks um, help us assume that people are totally self-sufficient, right? We talk about here in Lava May, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts, little mm. tiny things that someone does to you that seem so insignificant, but that really, you know, destroy you. And I think if you come from a place of empathy, it changes you, you know, dramatically. And you don't have to walk in their shoes, but just to empathize with them as fellow human beings and all the things that we as fellow human beings grapple with is powerful. Um, that's a powerful connection. And people think of storytelling sometimes as this magical thing, but it, it also is really powerful. I saw a play recently at Cutting Ball Theater in the Tenderloin called Tenderloin, which was a documentary theater piece in which they interviewed people from the community, from the neighborhood where the where the theater is located, and told their story. They acted out their stories. And I tell you, after coming out of that performance, I've never looked at um, an unhoused person in the same way. Yeah. And whenever possible, I try to make some kind of connection. And, you know, if, if the opportunity presents itself, have a short conversation or learn their name or get just get information that, that adds that adds reality to yes. what we have turned into a a, a, a distancing right narrative ex, ex narrative, yeah. and you tell these wonderful stories about the clients that you serve. Can can you are there a few that we, <laughs> that so come, many <laughs> come come to mind that that will let the people who are listening to us better kind of get the essence of of how you go about your day and how you serve people and what that does for you and for them. Yeah. So. Um, in the very beginning, one of our guests who comes to mind is a young man named Eric, and he had moved from Portland to San Francisco for a job. He was a sound engineer. His wife, unfortunately, um, got addicted to pain meds and then opiates and got in the car with their teenage daughter and got into a terrible accident and their daughter died. And it dissolved their marriage, and he eventually just spiraled downward, lost his job. And he had been on the street for a few years when we met him, but got to know him over time and learned his story. And I think it was like a year and a half in, and he came to us one day and he said, I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready to reconnect with my life. And so he reached out to his network and said, I'm looking for a job. He was also, you know, a guy who loved to be stylish and fashionable but he was shopping at, you know, free St. Anthony's and Goodwill. And so we learned about that and we reached out to some friends and we got him a gift certificate to Zara and then we got him really cool Fluvog shoes. And so he was, he was set and he went to the interview and, and he got the job and he said, 
I would never have been able to do this if I hadn't been surrounded by people who saw me as a person, not someone who was judging me by my clothes or the fact that I was sleeping on the street or that I had good days and bad days, but who just saw the possibilities in me and held me in that place. And he got this amazing job as a sound engineer at Adobe and, you know, went on to his life. It was, it was powerful. Um, not that his life was free from pain, but he was able to slowly heal. Another young man uh, came out to me one day when I was um, at the on-site visiting, and he said, you don't know me, but you have to hear my story. I have to tell you what Lava Man did for me. And he said, um, six months ago, I was ready to chuck it all in. I'd been on the street for a while. I wasn't finding a way out, and I just thought, I can't keep living like this. I was ready to end my life. He said, literally, I was in the mission, and I came around the corner, and I saw the lava may showers. And I stood there looking for a while. And what I realized is that every person I saw go in was a slightly different person when they came out. It was like they had a sense of hope. Their walk was a little bit lighter. So I thought, I've got nothing to lose. Why don't I take a shower? And he goes, I got in there. And not only was the grime being washed away, but the sense of hopelessness was washing away from me. And I felt shiny and new in a way I hadn't in a long time. And I decided then and there I was going to shower with Lava May every single day that it offers service. And he stepped back from me and he opened his arms wide and he said, and look at me now, because I am a new person and I'm going to get housed at the end of this month, right? And he said, and yes, the showers were amazing, but it's the sense of belonging, the sense of community that has made the difference in my life. And he hugged me. And it was just so, you know, those stories happen all the time um, out there on the street. And they, they're priceless. <laughs> and, and yet you sometimes, and I don't want to take this in the wrong direction, but still it needs to be acknowledged, which is that you still deal with people who don't understand that. Sure. And you deal with opposition and folks who just don't see or don't, can't see or don't want to see. Right. How do you how do you engage with those kinds of responses? I think for us we really try and understand that people operate from a place of fear more often than not and a lack of understanding, right? So we talk about marketing and branding the brand of homelessness is dominated by a small percentage of people. I mean, even if it was a third, people who have serious addictions, people who have mental health issues. Um, and those people require compassion and care and their human rights just as much. But those are the most visible. And people get angry with them because they see our streets that are dirty. Um, they see them, you know, being um, assaulted or freaked out by somebody who's having a breakdown on the street. But the truth is, you know, the face of homelessness often looks like you or I. Right, people who may even have jobs but have had to move into their cars or live in a shelter because they got evicted, and that is a huge spiral downward that's hard to recover from. Um, so trying to educate people is the first thing, but also just coming from a place of compassion, understanding that this is the message that they're receiving. But then, you know, like I said, the second part of it is can we shift mindset by helping people to understand, first of all, in its most simplest form, the power of getting clean and what that means to each and every single one of us. And so that was one of the easiest parts in terms of raising money is that even people who didn't believe you should provide homeless services understood that people needed to get a shower. Sometimes it was, sometimes it was only because they didn't want to be passing people who smelled, right? But whatever, they resonated with the idea of getting clean. Um, the second part is to help people understand that providing services doesn't mean it encourages people to stay unhoused or that it encourages more people to become unhoused. Living on the streets and even living in shelters, especially group shelters, is a demoralizing, depressing thing to have happen to you. You're not safe. You are not a human being. And it is so degrading that... If people really could, for one moment, step into those shoes, they would be forever changed. What do you tell young people today? I saw a number of them volunteering or working in, in the office here. Uh, obviously, there's there's a need, there's a, a real desire out there to try and 
do better, to help people to do, how do, how do you mentor young people to keep them engaged and to help them understand how to use what you've learned over the years? So here's what's so amazing. And I don't know if it's because it's the Bay Area and it's a bubble, but I go into schools and talk all the time, whether from second graders to university students, and they are all leaps and bounds ahead of where I was at that age. They are thinking about their community. They are growing up seeing all of these massive problems from climate change to homelessness. And instead of feeling hopeless and giving up, feeling that it is their opportunity to step forward and answer the call of service. They're doing beautiful things. Um, and they, especially when they're younger, they just see people. They don't see unhoused people. They, you know, they just see their fellow neighbors. And so they give me the greatest sense of hope. This summer, we do have five interns. We have three from Stanford, one from Dartmouth, and one in high school. Well, actually just graduated from high school, getting ready to go on to college. And their connection to our guests when they're out there on the street is joyous. They just bring joy and acceptance. And they like they model behavior that I, you know, want to copy and am inspired by. And if anything, what we hope to do is to give them a framework for thinking about how you solve problems and the absolute confirmation that whatever it is that they can do along that path will be transformative. You know, I, I always or we try to uh, always end, end an interview by asking somebody what gives them hope, but you're such a hopeful person <laughs> that you've already answered the question <laughs> without my having to have asked it. And I just want to thank you again so much for the great work that you do for the generosity of spirit that you are providing to this community, but I think also to people who hear your story. It's, thank you, Denise Sandoval of Lava May. Thank you. And we're back. Wow. What'd you think? So I'm I'm dabbing I'm dabbing my tears away. I'm telling you. <laughs> Man. So I want to separate, if we can, this conversation. I want to talk about mechanics for a moment, and then I want to talk about meaning. Mechanics like the guys who fix your car? Well, or the mechanics of actually doing what Denise is doing, which oh, is that. how you roll trucks, it sounds like, or old buses around San Francisco <laughs> and provide... But so there's so many, because the mechanical parts of this, and she actually talks about this part of the story so well, who she had to meet, the conversations she had to have, the process she had to go through. Um, in our nonlinear process of collecting these podcasts, you've actually gone down this road with another person who created a nonprofit, you know, who's going to yeah. work in here from later. But it's really hard to do any of this. And Danish just happened to choose something that is so difficult to envision, envision doing. I just, I can't even wrap my head around going through this whole process, working with government, this, the city agencies, all that stuff. So what do you make of the mechanics of what you <laughs> are encountering here, let alone, and then we'll get into the meaning, what's happening with this. I'm trying to put a deck on my house in San Francisco and I'm already up to, it's a year and counting. Right. I don't even have the permit right. yet. <laughs> I mean, no, it's true. So the mechanics, of course, are extraordinary. And the fact that somebody would, just figure out how to do this is is amazing. Yeah. But uh, obviously the thing that's most important are the people whose lives she's yes. changing and touching. And that's amazing. And I, I've just loved hearing her tell these stories because it is a real reminder that in these days when it is so easy to decide that somebody is the other, that I don't have time for them or that it's unpleasant to engage with them. Or we think about this in political terms as well. Those people are bad. They're wrong. Yeah. I disagree with them and I'm going to negate them. All of those things, it, it feels to me, go together. And one of the things that she obviously realized was that you have to understand where the people whom you are attempting to support or serve or or engage with where they're coming from yeah. so that you can really meet their needs. And I think that's a huge lesson for us all as communicators is who are we speaking to and what do they care about? Yeah. And how do we find ways to see them and to listen to them? That's amazing. So, Denise, good storyteller or bad storyteller, Eric? Good, good storyteller. <laughs> and it isn't... <laughs> 
I was listening to her talk and thinking, yes, she's got the professional credentials, right? She's got her own background in marketing communications. But I was, and yes, she's clearly personally connected to the work. And she tells the story about that and, and, and what, where that comes from. But as she was talking, I also had this, just kept having this thought of, of this is postgraduate lesson in how to communicate about this work, right? This is, this is such communicating from such a level of empathy and compassion, but then also um, just all the language brought me in immediately, which is why I want to talk about the mechanics of it a little bit okay. first before we talk about the meaning, because the meaning is just overwhelming, right? The, the power of what she's doing right. is overwhelming. But the how of what she's doing, I don't want to. I don't want to lose sight of. So, for instance, one of the people that's along the way, somebody I haven't met, Bevan Dufty. She mm-hmm. refers to you know, and and yeah. and you know, kind of what the czar of you know homelessness in San Francisco, right? And now the Bart czar. So, so I, it went from one easy job to the other, from dealing <laughs> with hom- homelessness to dealing with mass transit in, in San Francisco. Yeah. So, gifted storyteller, able to network and make all these connections in a very difficult terrain. You've tried to do things in San Francisco, so high, not an easy thing to do. And then, of course, dealing with this glaring issue, which is how we work with. And and can we again? I want to talk about it as a mechanical question, almost, or like a tactical question: the unhoused versus the homeless. Yeah. That's Love right. that turn of phrase, right? Love that sensibility that says let's let's refer to these people as unhoused because we, you know, right? I mean, I just I, I love how she approaches that part of her work and the storytelling that goes in it. Yeah, well, it what what she's doing is is adding humanity <sighs> to the people with whom she engages on a daily basis, and and it makes you have to think about people in a different way, and as she says, to see them, to really see them. Yeah. Yeah. And the stories she has, I mean, 30, she, she breaks the percentages, maybe 30% of the population that's unhoused, you would say, could be drug addicted or, you know, suffering from severe, you know, mental illness challenges, issues in and of themselves worthy of our support and attention. But then she says, what about those other 70%? You know, and it reminds us, it really does feel like, you know what, four or five things go bad in a row. Oh, Absolutely. Right. What's your what, what's your floor? What's what's your what's your magic you know carpet ride that's going to spare you from that outcome? So, it's stunning. What do we make of the fact that in the San Francisco Bay Area, Denise is not operating off of an infinite capital reserve? Right. To to test this model and just get it to test the limits of of what infinite resources would do. Because I can't imagine fundraising for her is the easiest thing in the world. No, it's not. It's really not. And one of the things that she has mentioned is that it's particularly difficult because funders are looking at trying to solve systemic problems. Yes. And here she is offering a social service solution, and it is not seen as strategic. Now, it is also true that the let's call it an intervention, which is another word I really don't like, but it is an activity that gives you entry. It gives you access to people in ways that can can deal with some of the systemic challenges of, of not having home. Or, or another way of thinking about it is th- there are so many other benefits to engaging with people at a, in a very simple way. They just want to get clean. And then you can offer them services and you can engage them and help them with job training or whatever it is and help move them into the system. So there are, needless to say, a, a lot of different ways to tackle some of these challenges. And you kind of hit it from up high and you get it from down below and you try and deal with the, the larger systemic problems of poverty or mental health yeah. problems or substance abuse. But you also have the, the kind of the day-to-day reality of trying to just help address the simple, basic needs of human beings. And she, so she's going at it from that angle and it's hard to fund. And, you know, we've had conversations recently about where does strategy live? Who gets to decide what's strategic? You know, what is systemic? Who gets to right. put the right terminology around that? And I do think that one of the interesting things that I'm learning in this podcast, just hearing people re- reflect on this stuff, is that I feel like a systemic challenge to philanthropy is being able to accommodate this kind of a strategy, which feels so tactical. Mm-hmm. What you're, you're, you're just helping 
these homeless people and giving them a shower? What's that worth, right? But you hear the stories, you hear Denise talk about it, and everything about what she's doing is about reframing the experience, bringing a whole new compassion and empathy to it, and then watching people be able to actually take this moment or intervention or whatever you want to call it, this, this offer of help, and translate it into a really transformative ways in their whole lives. That feels systemic to me. Yes. Right, that feels deeply strategic to me, and yet I could I could totally envision how difficult it is to walk into a funder's office and actually get support for this kind of work. Yeah, people see it; they may see it as turkeys on Thanksgiving. Right. And, yeah. But the the other thing that's so again as a as a communications as an analysis of communications practice, her ability to put a face on on the on her clients. To, to imbue them with the same hopes and dreams and fears and everything else that everybody experiences is is really beautiful and it's mm-hmm. very important. Yeah. And we have a tendency to think about audiences in terms of these bigger pro- populations. They're faceless. They're nameless. They don't have souls. And that's just bad communications. Yeah. And what she has done is personalize a, a thing that's that's difficult and even almost painful to personalize, but in ways that that make it real and meaningful and and kind of almost I don't know delightful. Yeah, yeah, right. You're, you're a person of value. This experience is going to communicate top to bottom that you're a person of value. Well, in in so now to the meaning. Because we get into some great Eric Brown stuff in here where you start getting into the whole conversation about listening, mm. you know, and what it is to listen. And then also the power of seeing and what it is yeah. to see these these people in our midst who are completely ignored, you know. And and um, I do think this is another goal I think we should have for our podcast of elevating this kind of work, elevating these kinds of stories. Because when you think about how systematically we are able to unsee but she's in the midst of that saying, I'm going to work in the midst of helping see systematically. It's so powerful. So tell me about that part because you you got into that and you actually started talking about your own experience of hearing that story for the first time yes. and how powerful it was for you. Well, it's interesting because when I whenever I do message work, I always ask people, what do you want your audience to know, feel, and do? Mm. Because the feel part is invariably left off. And you go to huh. you go to a presentation, huh. and they give you ninety nine slides worth of statistics, and there's no emotional connection. Right. And you know we remember through our emotions, and we remember through other stimuli, and and the feeling that you have when you think about people for whom you now have compassion. Yeah. is powerful yeah. and it's lasting. And she's really good at that. And most people aren't as good as they need to be. How many foundations are setting strategy, would you say globally, using emotional intelligence as part of the toolkit that they're drawing on to set strategy? Because to your point, if systems level intervention have got to be a math problem, I have to go one plus one and get to six, so now my payback is worth it. Are we actually factoring all the things we should be factoring to understand what is strategic? And yeah, well, the, uh, so the answer to your question is obviously not enough. <laughs> maybe I don't know. Maybe no, I maybe don't all of them do. Maybe all of them do. No, no, I don't yeah. think enough. Yeah. And when you talk about things like what do you want your audience to feel, sometimes they'll say, "Oh, well, that's touchy feely. That's too, mm. you know, that's where that's not how we. It's behavioral. You it's can't change right. behavior. It's yeah. yeah. It's too squishy. Yeah. And but this is how we communicate. Yeah. We communicate with emotion, and if you can't c- connect with people on that on an emotional level, you're missing out. Yeah. Well, and to um, to play a little opposition game because part of what she talks about here too is this whole othering. Again, we hear that word again, and just how that's it's such a problem. And and you ask about the empathy crisis, right? Are we yeah. in an empathy crisis? And I thought that conversation was great, but. I, I personally feel like our inability to actually work from that place of emotional centeredness actually has us almost operating with one arm, one hand tied behind our back yeah. consistently when we're actually in these, you know, large issues of scale. The last thing to talk about, um, Lava May is using interns. And it's it's just we've talked about it. It's become just something that more and more I think is so important for all of our work and all of our field. But she Denise talks about how powerful it is to have our interns engaged and how, 
it seems to me she she feels that the experience she's having with her own interns is that they intuitively understand what she's trying to do, and they have an intuitive ability to actually support it. And I don't know if I heard that right or if I'm mischaracterizing what she said, but I, I, I just love that whole part of what Lava Man is doing. And of course, it made perfect sense to me that that would be such a valuable part of what they're working on, too. The fact that she's working with young people and the, that the young people get this yes. in ways that maybe other older people might not <laughs> right. is quite valuable, gives me hope that the next generation is better than we are. Yeah. Uh, although I, you know, I hate to leave everything at the doorstep of the next generation. We're just it's blocking unf- and tackling. We're just opening doors and clearing the way. It's unfair of us to to them, but uh, it that does. I was in their office, and and there's just this amazing sense of energy and oh. enthusiasm and excitement, and a real belief that what they're doing is important. And that's a great way to spend your day. Well, and clearly the model is growing. Started here in the Bay Area and is moving to other cities. You know, um, operating in the shadow of institutions that, through rounding areas, errors, yeah. could fund this work in uh, perpetuity. Well, right? this is, and and here's where I I didn't climb on my soapbox with with Denise, but I, I will with you, which is, <laughs> you know, there is no way that we that governments should not be doing this work sure. and funding it. It right. is you're, it is a rounding error. I mean, the, the the budget for the city of San Francisco is in the in the tens of billions. But the the idea that you, I think, uh, that that you would not find all of these wraparound services in ways that are effective and efficient is crazy that Donnie has to go out and raise you yeah. know $100,000 here and a half right. a million there that's nuts right, right. but she does because we're just you know uh, okay I'm gonna get off the soapbox <laughs> but it, 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 it does kind of make me crazy right it should no I, literally you know how I get angry I was literally listening to this just going it, it made me insane you know just you know, and, and the data point 16 and you're nice <laughs> You're a very nice Midwestern man. Sixteen shower stalls. I know to the whole serve city. seventy-five. Yeah, That's great. it's just yeah. yeah. And, and then and then and then we. I can't resist, but even just talking about, if you think that the network of support we have, you know, through the shelters or just drop in and just how crushingly dehumanizing yeah. it is, and just yeah, it's just um, so so. This topic, I think we need to bring our criminal justice reform colleagues onto this podcast and have them tell their stories in a similar way about what they're working. But this but this kind of work, it just feels so crucially important. I think it seems strategic. I think it seems like a system-level intervention. Um, and Denise, man. And it's great May. communications. Oh. What she's doing is, you're right, graduate-level, postgraduate, postdoc communications because it really really does tell a story in a way that can move an audience to action writing an entirely new playbook is what i would say yeah like showing us an entirely new way to do it so lava may igniting a radical hospitality revolution beautiful and uh denise sandoval and your entire team what a treat to hear it. eric my goodness that was amazing that was fun thanks everybody we'll see you in a couple of weeks see you next time Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have in the show, and that includes yourself. And we'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator, Sarah Morgan, our tireless social and digital media maven, John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music, Ben Rockwood, our brilliant partner behind the production curtain, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the Lumina Foundation for their incredibly generous support. We are especially excited to welcome our newest sponsor, the Heinz Endowments. And be sure to check out their podcast, We Can Be, hosted by Grant Oliphant at Heinz.org slash podcasts. Thanks so much. Thank you, thank you. And we certainly thank our guests and, of course, all of you. And thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it.